This week's episode is also sponsored by NatureBox. Go to naturebox.com slash weeds for 50% off your first order. The following podcast contains explicit language. Oh, I'm yeah. excited, guys. This is the weeds we've ever we've always needed. This is the weeds we've been training for. Akka. It's Akka. Oh, that's so dumb. Akka? You wanted to call it Acha, but there's like no <laughs> textual <laughs> justification for that. Acha. I think, they, I think it's Acha. They should have called it Acha. No, the but you I- need a seed to exist in there somehow. It's terrible with the seed. The Acha. idea of making healthcare great again. You I cannot think... pronounce the Republican healthcare bill unless you went to Hebrew school. That's true. That's the point. <laughs> yes. It's so. a ha with the parentheses around it. Aha. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'll taste the soup. Where's the spoon? Aha. Aha. All right. Let's see some weeds. Uh, what do you know from funny, you bastard? Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds, Vox's policy podcast on the Panoply Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, joined <laughs> by my colleagues Ezra Klein and Sarah Cliff. We are going to, due to overwhelming uh, demand, um, this is going to be an all-aka episode. Um, no, so, you know, this is really, you know, what some of my co-hosts here live for, is to is to talk about this stuff. So we're going to get into some classic weed stuff on, on this episode. It's going to be an all-aka, acha, achoo! Achoo, uh, Obamacare repeal and replace episode. We're going to go through it all. But, you know, if you're ever interested in something um, a little less boring, <laughs> uh, our colleague uh, Vox's own Todd Vanderwerf is launching a new podcast that you might want to check out. So Todd, is, he's an excellent cultural critic, and he's somebody who really gets the deep underpinnings of culture, looks at it as a reflection of America's subconscious, and is also very technically interested mm-hmm. in how it works, how shots are framed, all of that. So he's got this great new podcast. It's called I Think You're Interesting, which you can find wherever fine podcasts are sold. His first interview is with Ryan Murphy, who's a creator of Glee, creator of a bunch of other great things. Uh, that interview actually made a lot of news, but it's also just a fascinating look at, at how a creator of a lot of your favorite things thinks about the construction of culture, thinks about what ideas are being played out in it and, and, and what actually works in it and does it. Uh, I have listened to this. I've been listening to some of the upcoming episodes, too. I've recorded an upcoming episode with him, and it's great. So you should listen to it. It's called I Think You're Interesting. Um, Sarah, we have another thing to plug. Vox Conversations. Vox Conversations. Conversations with Vox. I love conversations. Um, So this is the second Vox Conversations. We did a first one, and it is a combination of about, I think, like 100 to 150, just like really interesting people coming together for two days of talks and unconference sessions. I love the first one. I met so many interesting people, so many Weeds listeners, and it will be on April 26th and April 27th here in Washington, D.C. If you go on our website or if you go to conversations.vox.com, you can apply to be part of it. Um, we will be doing a live taping of the weeds there. Should I, I say that? that is, right. is that accurate? I okay. think that's accurate. We're going right. to keep that in. Well, Maybe we won't. Now we're committed we to it. So um, I had a great time. I met a ton of our readers. I learned a lot from people who do things nothing related to healthcare. Actually, my favorite sessions were ones that have nothing to do with my day job. And I think a lot of Weeds listeners would really enjoy being part of it. So go to conversations.box.com to apply, and hopefully we'll see 
a few of you there. And, and I'll add one more thing on this, which is it, it has taken place on about Donald Trump's 100th day. So the, the broad theme is sort of policy in the Trump era. So it's going to be a very weedsy conference. We would love to have a bunch of you there. It's always meaningful to, to meet listeners of the show. Uh, but we also try to keep this a, a real conversation. So we keep it small. So go to conversations.vox.com to apply. Uh, search I Think You're Interesting, wherever you get your podcast, to download Todd's podcast. And now let's get into the weeds. First, really hoping that Sarah can help walk us through, like, what in, like, a pretty straight way, what does this do? Like, what what's happening with our Can, can I also suggest, because there's a lot going on yeah. here, do we break this into pieces of the bill? Go for sure. it. Like, let's begin. Ready. Like, let's begin with subsidies. subsidies. What happens to subsidies? Okay. So the subsidies, they, they stick around in a very reduced and very different form. So it helps understand the ACA. That would also be pronounced aka. aka. That's exactly. why, that's why that's this one is versus aka. So, also acha. Achu. No, I know. <laughs> Me and Margaret Singer cats at the Times are trying to make it work. Health. We're, we're on a Twitter campaign about this. But it doesn't spell that. Okay, it's fine, but it's be, it's more fun. Achu. Just think about it. Just just weed listeners, just making healthcare fun again. Yeah. What happens to the healthcare subsidies in Achu? Okay. In in the Republican healthcare plan, there are insurance subsidies to make health insurance a little bit more affordable. However, they are very, very different than the subsidies under Obamacare. In the law right now, you have means-tested subsidies. This means that the people who earn the least get the most help. And they kind of structure it in a way where they say if you earn a certain amount, you only have to spend X percent of your income on health care. So I think if you're earning around like $20,000, which is like right around probably between 150, 200 percent of the poverty line, you only have to spend about 3 percent of your income on health care. And the government will just kick in whatever the rest is. It doesn't matter how big the actual premium is. It's just tethered to your income. You have this defined amount you contribute. And tethered to the actual cost of health insurance. Yes. Right. Which I think is important there. Sort of. Aren't, uh, tell me if oh, I'm wrong. Yes, subsidies are yes. tied to the second benchmark silver <laughs> You're plan, right? right? Yeah. Now, now we're going real in the weeds. So you get a subsidy that would essentially make a mid-level health insurance plan affordable. So you're right, Ezra. It's not like you could have any plan for this percent of your income. They say it would cost you 3% of your – it would cost, let's say, 3% of your income to get this mid-level plan. We expect you to pay that much. We'll chip in the rest. And, and that's how the Obamacare subsidies work. They phase out at 400% of the poverty line, which is about $48,000 for an individual or I think 96000 I want to say, for a family of four. Mm-hmm. Um, I just showing off. <laughs> these numbers are burned into my brain Ezra, after seven years of doing this. So those are the Obamacare subsidies. Means tested. They're much bigger for poor people. They don't exist for rich people. Um, Republicans shift to something quite different. They essentially have a flat tax credit for most people. They say that everyone who earns less than $75,000, which I guess is probably somewhere around like seven or eight hundred percent of the poverty line, they get the same exact amount. Um, it doesn't matter if you're in 20000 40000 60000 All those people are getting the same tax credit. And it doesn't matter what health insurance plans in the area. You yeah. So this is a key. So they do. So they do vary by age. So older people get more because health insurance tends to cost more when you're older. But I think one of the key flaws in this plan is that health insurance costs a lot of money in, let's say, Alaska, where it's really expensive to deliver health care and you have to use a lot of helicopters or even in like a rural area. It's just there's less hospitals. They have more bargaining power. Health insurance ends up costing more. Actually, and in a weird way, it's these high cost areas like New York and D.C. that tend to have lower health care costs because there's much more choice. It's easier to get to the doctor. There's more competition between hospitals. So the tax credits in the Obamacare plan, they're only adjusted by age under $75,000. There's no geographic adjustment, no income adjustment. 
at $75,000, they start to phase out, I believe, by 10% over each $1,000 you earn until they end um, whenever you kind of like run out of the tax credit. And how big is what, – what is the maximum tax credit under this? Yeah, so the maximum tax credit is $4,000 for people who are over 60. It's 4000 Yeah. Which, and, yeah. And how much for younger people? Do you know if – So I think it's – two. the lowest is 2000 for people under 30. What, what can you buy for – let's say you're a 27-year-old yeah. in um, just a, yeah. Chicago. What, well, what can you buy? Lucky for us, Urban Institute did an exact study like this. So Linda Blumberg there, she looked at this question, like, how far do these credits get you? If you're, like, 20 or 21, you can actually – you can buy that mid-level plan we were talking about. You can buy – it's called a silver plan on the marketplace. Um, you could buy that with just your tax credit, spending no more money. So if you're the youngest, th- this works out decently well for you. And um, one of the kind of weird things is with the tax credits are by decade. So 20 to 29-year-olds get the same tax credit, 30 to 39-year-olds, so on and so forth. So once you hit each new decade, you kind of are able to afford a little more. And then you keep getting age rated as you go up the decade. So you can afford less and less until you get to your 40th birthday and until you get to your 50th birthday. And then up in the 60s, um, you can afford something that I wouldn't really call health insurance. They Urban Institute estimated you could afford a plan with a 25% actuarial value, which, which means that on average it covers Oof. 25% of your healthcare of the member's health care costs, which is – I mean, most experts would not consider that health insurance. I don't think CBL will consider that health insurance. Like, this is like a very, very bare bones, catastrophic plan. Um, so it depends really, like, how old you are is the really key term. And also where you live is going to be important, too. Um, I think people who live in an urban area will be able to afford more than people who live in rural areas. Can I suppose I were a Donald oh, Trump voter. Yes. <laughs> Older, lower income, more likely to live in a rural area. I would not be in very good shape here. Yeah. I mean, you're kind of the person. I I think the person who does best in this is like a 21-year-old who lives in New York City. And the person who does worst in this is like a 63-year-old who who lives in like rural Alaska or Midwest. That's kind of like the two um, extremes. Do do you think they know this? Like not the voters. Do you think the Trump administration realizes this fact? Um, that's a good question. I mean, I think to be fair, like it's kind of a weird way where the policies that the two parties favor don't really line up with their base. Because you could say, well, didn't the Democrats realize that they were making insurance really expensive for young people and that's their base? Like they mm-hmm. made health insurance expensive for that 21 year old who lives in New York. And like, why would they do that? So I, I think it's mm-hmm. happening on both sides. And the reason they did that is because as a principle, they thought health insurance should be less expensive for older people. So they were willing to make that trade off. And you're seeing the opposite here, where you have like a governing philosophy that insurance, the government should not subsidize insurance as much, that it should make it cheaper for young people to bring, to make the whole risk pool healthier, to make it more like the market before Obamacare. And that really cuts um, against the people who who typically support them. So, wait, can, yeah. can I ask you something? Because I've seen on my, on my tweets this morning a lot of uh, people showing these maps that are mm-hmm. going around. And those all show that Older people, you know, tend to get higher subsidies under this plan mm-hmm. uh, rather than than younger people, uh, w- which is true. Yes. Um, so why is it that even though older people are getting more subsidies, they're being oh, able to afford less insurance? Excellent question, Matt. So it has to do with another change that is made in this um, in AHA. And it is right now um, Obamacare lets insurers charge old people three times as much as the youngest enrollees. 
And the idea here is really just constrain the cost for older Americans. Like I was saying earlier, um, older Americans tend to cost about five times as much. But that makes health insurance very expensive. So the Obama administration said, we want to cover those 60-year-olds who were locked out of the market before. We're going to make young people pay a little bit more so older people pay less. Um, so the the AHA wants to <laughs> – can't keep doing this. Um, the health care bill from Republicans, they want to I'm move – coming around to a chew. To, yeah, see? Exactly. Now, now you know where I'm coming from. Um, the Republican health care bill wants to move to five to one, saying you can charge your oldest enrollees five times as much as the youngest – so what you have is five to one age rating where older and older, the premiums for the oldest enrollees are five times as great as the youngest, but you only have two to one subsidies. So the subsidies for old people are only twice as big as the subsidies for young people. So, so spending on health insurance for old people goes up, but old people are actually able to afford less yes. insurance. Yeah, they're getting a bigger credit, but their premium is going up much, much more than the credit will we'll track with. That's a curious design choice. So th- this, I think, brings us – there's a different – there's another piece of this, particularly for poorer folks mm-hmm. who were not on the tax credit subsidies or, but were being covered by Medicaid, at least in the states that did a Medicaid yes. expansion. So what is what is Achu due to Medicaid? <laughs> um, the Republican health care bill on Medicaid. So they, um, they heard a lot of feedback from governors who had expanded Medicaid. There's 15 Republican governors who run Medicaid expansion states who really want to keep the program – so what they do is they keep Medicaid expansion intact for three years through January um, 1st, 2020. Um, at that point, Medicaid expansion enrollment freezes. You can't sign any more people up. You can keep the people you have on. But the idea is some of them will forget to turn in forms. Some of them will, you know, roll off the program because their income changes. And eventually the program will shrink. There's decent evidence that when you freeze enrollment, it's a very fast shrink. It's not like this kind of slow lingering thing. Um, I think in Arizona they did this with their – kids' health insurance program, and you saw just a really steep decline. Um, So that's one side of it. The other side of it is a change to the entire Medicaid program, where they would like to convert it to a per capita cap system. Right now, the way Medicare works, or Medicaid works, is that the government has an open-ended commitment to covering people's medical bills. If you're on Medicaid, the federal government pays a certain percent of your bills. The state pays a certain cent. It doesn't matter if your bills are $1,000, $10,000, a million dollars. The government is committed to covering those bills. Under this Republican plan, they would kind of figure out – and the figuring out is actually a hugely important process, and we could talk a little bit more about that later. They would say, here's how much we think is reasonable to give you for each person on Medicaid. Give states that lump sum, and they would have to kind of uh, make sure they live within their means. We don't really know what would happen if – you know, let's say you had that million-dollar patient who kind of wiped out all the payments, like what you would do then. And so that's a part of this bill I don't really understand super well right now because we actually – because I don't think we have great data on the size of that amount and how quickly it would grow, which are these wonky details. We know it would grow by the consumer price index. The What is the official name of this? It's, Matt a, it's a consumer this. price index uh, medical. medical inflation index, which in my opinion is a much less reasonable choice than it sounds like. Um, so- well, it's more generous than just the CPI, but it still seems – anyways, I don't really know how exactly it would grow these payments. And that's like a hugely important part to figuring out, is this a huge cut to Medicaid? Is it a small cut? Is it not a cut? Um, it seems like some of the initial data suggests most of the Medicaid cuts are on the expansion side, not on the per capita cap side. But that's one I'm waiting for a little more so the, research The on. Medicaid population is pretty heterogeneous. Right. So mm-hmm. it's like you have a lot of like children of low income parents mm-hmm. whose health care costs are probably not that high in the scheme of things. And then you also have a lot of low income elderly people in long term care situations yeah. whose so 
I mean, it, it it seems like when we get down to this, right, there's going to be a big question, like, internal to Medicaid, right? If your funding is just based on a per-person Well, no, average, so it, it is know. categorized. So you get oh, per is. kids, per disabled, per able-bodied adult. So they, they do ah. categorize it by the type of people you have in Medicaid. So it does not create the incentive to, like, kick the long-term care off people off so you can get these really cheap kids on. Nice. If you're anything like me, you know, sometimes you want a snack. And if what's around a snack on is junk food, you're going to eat junk food. And it's it's not great. Um, so if you want to sort of live a healthier life, you can start snacking healthier with NatureBox. Uh, they make snacks that actually taste great and they're better for you. They're created with high quality ingredients that are free from artificial colors, flavors or sweeteners. So you can feel OK about snacking. Uh, I, I like some of their dried fruit stuff. They got great apples. They got great pears. Um, they also have some, you know, slightly more indulgent pretzely things in there that, that I also uh, I also go for. And they've recently made their service even better. You can order as much as you want, as often as you want, with no minimum purchase required, and you can cancel it at any time. Uh, so it's really simple. You go to naturebox.com, you check out their snack catalog. There's over 100 snacks to choose from. They're always adding new stuff. So you choose what you want. They deliver it right to your door. It's easy. With Naturebox, you'll never get bored. There's new stuff there each month. It's inspired by real customer feedback. And if for some reason something comes, you don't like it, they will replace it for free. That's a good opportunity to try try out something new. Um, so right now you'll save even more because NatureBox is offering our fans 50% off your first order if you go to naturebox.com slash weeds. So you go to naturebox.com slash weeds. Uh, that way we get credit. You get 50% off your first order. Naturebox.com slash weeds. Okay, so on Medicaid, the expansion is hell, and you can actually add new people. Hell, you could you could sign you up could for sign Medicaid. Up for Medicaid. So right now, Florida like, could come in and start yeah. So doing right now, in Medicaid Kansas expansion. and Maine, there's actually like some initial steps towards Medicaid expansion. I actually think this bill is a huge incentive to expand Medicaid right now and get a ton of people signed up. In a weird way, that's how this bill could entrench Medicaid expansion more than Obamacare does. But then in 2020. They don't stop covering those people, but you no. cannot add any new people on under those terms. Yes. And once someone falls off, and they're off for good. And once somebody falls off, they're off for good. And then they move Medicaid to this somewhat undefined uh, in terms of the exact dollar amounts, but this yes. Medicaid per capita cap, which we expect, right? Again, they, they've not been super clear about any of this. There's a lot that has mm-hmm. to be worked out. And there's no congressional budget office score of the bill yet. But we expect is going to be a, a large long-term cut. And the reason it has to be a very large long-term cut is – Contained in the taxes portion of the bill. Yes. That if you do not do a big Medicaid cut, this next part really fucks everything up. Yes. So there is – there appears to be a curious lack of revenue in this bill, which is how do you pay for it? The um, Republican health care bill wants to keep a version of the subsidies. They want to keep Medicaid expansion around for a few years. Both of those things are expensive. Um, The Affordable Care Act included a number of new taxes um, and cuts to Medicare that would finance this whole expansion. And initially, Republicans wanted to raise some revenue by capping the um, exclusion for employer-sponsored coverage. So right now, you don't get taxed on the insurance you get at work. They wanted to tax anything above the 90th percentile of plans. Um, it turns out th- this has been like a, pl- a quest for years. This has come up so many times. And every time any legislator or politician raises it, employers freak out and lobby like hell. And the politicians and legislators initially retreat and decide it was a terrible idea. That's exactly what happened Um, With this bill where the cap on the employer-sponsored tax exclusion was in it until the very final draft, and then it falls out. And so what they do is they keep the Obamacare taxes around until January 1st, 2018. I do not understand how that raises – this one year of taxes raises enough revenue. And there's also some 
budget trickery going on with keeping the Cadillacs tax around starting in 2025. Right. They push that out. They push it out. And so to me, I am very curious to see the CBO score and like where the money is coming from. Well, but, but just, now I think but just to... taking this bill at face value real quick, it cuts all the Obamacare taxes on, on – particularly on the rich. Yes. So Joint Committee on Taxation yes. did a score and it's a $600 billion tax cut over 10 years. Yes. Uh, which, given where these taxes were coming from, is a very, very regressive tax cut. Yes. So, in addition to spending a lot of money, this bill also drops six hundred billion dollars out of the federal coffers. Yes. Again, we don't have a score on the bill. It would be lovely to have a score, but which th- we should talk about later. But I, I just, I really want to drive this home because I think it's going to be important for understanding a lot of what we're talking about. There is a six hundred billion dollar tax cut in this bill. Like yes. that is a yes. thing this bill is doing. Mostly for the wealthy. No, mostly for the wealthy. It has nothing to do with providing health care for people, but it is happening here. And it it drives a lot of other questions that are going to have to be answered. OK. Insurance regulations, which are, are fascinating. Which insurance are, regulations are kept? So a lot of insurance regulations are kept more than I think we initially expected from early drafts. The ban on preexisting conditions, the ban on lifetime limits and annual limits is in here, letting young adults stay on their parents' plan up to age 26. Um, the essential health benefits, those had fallen out in earlier drafts, and now they're they're back for for uncertain reasons, reasons we could talk about. But this is the requirement that health insurers um, cover 10 different sets of um, health insurance benefits, including maternity care, mental health services, prescription drugs. Uh, initially, Republicans wanted to take that part of the bill out because they felt, felt it was onerous. It drove up the cost of health insurance by having all these expensive insurance mandates. Um, so all of those regulations on insurance remain. And I think the big ones that change is the individual mandate is no longer there. Mm-hmm. It is replaced with this provision called continuous coverage, which is a surcharge on people who don't maintain continuous coverage. The idea is exactly the same as the individual mandate. You're trying to create an incentive for healthy people to buy insurance when they don't think they need it. The individual mandate did it by an annual fine that you pay to the government. The Republican plan does it with a 30% surcharge when you re-enter the individual market that you have to pay for a year. There's a very vibrant debate happening right now about whether this would induce a death spiral, whether this penalty is um, strong enough to get healthy people to buy insurance. Um, you can read a piece on Vox about that very debate. So can I can I just maybe yeah. slow us down on that for a minute? Because I think it's super important. So the way the insurance mandate works is that if you don't buy insurance, I believe right now uh, you get fined. The fine has a little bit of a complicated mechanism behind it, but I think it's 2.5% of income every year you don't have insurance. Yes. What this would say, and that's a, that's a annual thing. So they're yes. trying to get you into the pool every single year. What this would say is that let's say from – let's say that I was 21 and I didn't buy insurance and I bought it at 22. I would have a 30% surcharge for one year. Yes. Let's say I was 21. I didn't buy insurance until I got sick at 35. Mm-hmm. I would have a 30% surcharge for one year. Yes. By not having an annual structure – this allows for a or, – or at least creates a possible scenario where people could just wait a lot longer but not pay any more fine for mm-hmm. waiting until they got sick to get health insurance. Mm-hmm. Republicans have been saying over and over again that Obamacare, um, uh, it's having death spirals in certain markets. I don't think we're at a death spiral scenario yet in Obamacare, but it's definitely true that the mandate is too weak. Mm-hmm. Premiums have been going up. This is a problem that it is not in any way obvious to me this solves and may make worse. Yeah. They have not solved the selection problem. And Bob Lazuski, who, who I think we both take pretty seriously, he's a, a consultant mm-hmm. for the healthcare industry. He has this post on he's not a fan of Obamacare. He says that Obamacare is an anti-selection machine. Mm-hmm. 
And this is even worse. <laughs> yeah. So I will say there, this is like a very active yeah. debate. I've been talking to people who who think differently about it, who think that the individual mandate is quite weak. And because of that, like that's kind of your baseline, right? Like that's the mechanism you've been using. And it's a very low fine um, over over time. So it is a smaller fine each year, but it does add up, like you're saying. Um, I, I think one of the interesting things I learned talking to um, a former Senate aide who was working on the Republican side in 2009, they had CBO score a provision like this. And CBO thinks they work the same. CBO thinks the penalties, they essentially induce the same sort of behavior that doing continuous coverage instead of individual mandate would not create a coverage loss. I've been talking to some people in the insurance industry, and it is telling to me that they are not super worried about this provision. If anyone has anything to lose from a death spiral, it is the health insurance companies who would get stuck with these bills um, that the premiums just don't cover. And they they like the mandate better, but they say, like, this is the second best option. And, like, this is not the hill we're going to die on. So it was interesting to hear that from the people who who really have a big horse in this fight. The, the, sorry. The bigger problem from a a desperate point of view, it seems to me, goes back to the fact that the premiums don't scale with the cost of the plans, right? So if you're thinking about, like, where are we most concerned, right? Consumers in Arizona right now have very, very, very little choice, right? Mm -hmm. But because Obamacare does more subsidies, the more expensive the local plans are, there's a pretty good incentive to be, like, the one provider, in an area, if you can be, whereas under under Acha, right, you can't just like be the monopolist and jack prices up and and earn a windfall because people won't have credits that cover your windfall profit. Mm -hmm. So suddenly the like one to zero margin seems much more plausible than, than it is mm -hmm. with, with affordable yeah. care. Yeah. I mean, that's, I don't think that's a death spiral. That's just like a collapsed insurance market <laughs> where no one wants to sell. So I definitely like agree. Well, but that's that's when you die. I mean, it's like you <laughs> no, I, no, it's right? no spiral. It's technically it's just, not a death spiral. It's like a heart attack. Yeah. Okay. Like well, you're fair just enough. Done. Dead. It, it would be very bad. I agree. I think there's a kind of near-death experience <laughs> built into the ACA's structure where like once you're the last insurer yeah. standing, you actually like are in pretty good shape uh, mm -hmm. almost no matter what because at a minimum there's this low income population who's getting your plans basically at no cost to themselves uh, but there's nothing like that there's no like bottom line safety net reason that like anyone mm -hmm. should be providing well, they, insurance yeah. in rural portions of Arizona I mean this is why we're seeing numbers from like S&P the ratings agency yesterday they put out an estimate that um coverage will decline 2 to 4 million people in the marketplace. Um, they think it'll be, they, you know, I talked to their analyst. He doesn't think the continuous coverage thing is a huge issue. He thinks it'll be a smaller but stable market. Um, but I definitely think you're right that, like, when you have the government subsidies scaling back a lot, that fewer insurers want to participate, fewer people want to participate and, and pay for their health insurance. I mean, I'm going to be very interested when we get coverage estimates because I've seen a lot of healthcare wonks estimating 15, 10 to 20 million. Then S&P came out, I think, including their Medicaid estimates were at 6, six to, to 10. 10. But the 10 so, to 20 was um, was an old draft. So I, I Oh, would, that was a different that draft. That was from a— No, no but this yeah. is what Lauren Adler and people were saying about this draft. Okay. They might be I, wrong. Yeah. I just we'll, we'll just be fascinated to see. Um, I want to talk about one other insurance regulation. Uh, actuarial value changed. Oh yeah! Wow. Now we're now we're really getting into it. Uh, no, but this is important, yeah. I think. Yeah. So the change. So actuarial value is kind of a wonky term for the average amount that a health insurance plan covers for its enrollees. Um, so if a plan has an actuary actuarial value of seventy percent, it means that on average, among all its patients. It covers 70% of the bills, and the individual is paying 30% of their medical bills. And it's 
it's a good way to do apples to apples health insurance comparison because sometimes it's really hard to understand like how much does this plan cover between the copays and the coinsurance and the deductible and the premiums? Like how much am I actually paying? Right now, Obamacare requires all health insurance plans to have an actuarial value of at least 60%. To consider it a health insurance plan, it has to cover 60% uh, on average of its members' costs. The Republican plan would get rid of that requirement. It says you could lower – there's no actuarial value standards. Some states would probably pass one. States used to have them before the Affordable Care Act passed. But this could be a way, even though the essential health benefits are are technically included – that they could become financially out of reach of patients. Let's say you have a really catastrophic health insurance plan with like a 40 or 35% actuarial value. So that might mean, you know, you have a plan that covers maternity care, like covers substance abuse treatment, but has a $100 copay each time you go to the doctor or has like a huge out-of-pocket deductible. Um, So this could be another really big change um, from how the healthcare law works now. The Republican plan does keep Obamacare's out-of-pocket maximum, which I think is about 6000 or so dollars right now. Um, that's a lot of money. Like that's So you'd have to create an actuarial value that um, didn't require to spend, people to spend more than $6,000. But you could you could still go pretty low with that kind of cost Yeah, sharing. there's something weird happening now, which is that, and, and we should talk about why this is happening. And But they are keeping a bunch of the regulations on what plans have to cover. Mm-hmm. but not what percentage of benefits they cover. So now those two things sort of point in different directions. So you yes. have to cover all these essential health benefits, including uh, this was the Republicans' big attack on Obamacare forever. The essential health benefits were crazy yes. and they were driving up the cost of everything. You know, you had men paying for maternity care and men have nothing to do with childbirth. So how could men have to pay for maternity care? Um, but they kept that in. They've kept lifetime limits in. They've kept some of the out-of-pocket caps in. Mm-hmm. But you can have a plan that covers as little as you want. This is the last, this actuarial benefit change is the final thing Republicans can do. It's really the only thing they're doing on average for everyone, right? Because the the age rating makes it cheaper for young, but more expensive Mm -hmm. for the old. This is the only thing they're doing to make all health insurance conceptually cheaper Mm -hmm. by letting it cover less. Uh, But it's still very constrained, right? It's happening. It's like a caged regulation. Right. And it seems like it's being constrained by two things. One is this memo the CBO put out, I think, um, in the fall, where they sent this memo that felt like it came somewhere out of nowhere, where they said, we know we're going to score some kind of health care placement, and we want to tell you, like, not anything is health insurance. Like, if we're going to score someone that's covered, like, they need to have a decent plan. They did not define, like, what decent was, but they said it has to be, like, comprehensive major medical insurance. So I think some of this is coming from CBO pressure to build insurance products that like would actually cover someone's costs. The other is what Matt was referring to earlier is this bird rule where they are trying to pass this bill through reconciliation, which is a process where you can only touch um, policies that have a direct effect on the federal budget. It can't be an incidental effect that, oh, we make this change. And by the way, it kind of tinkers with the budget a little bit. The Senate parliamentarian has to rule that this is a direct effect on the budget. And it's really hard to make an argument that re-regulating health insurance benefits is going to directly affect the budget. And there's actually – so I think that's why some of this stuff is left out. And there are all there are parts of the law We're talking about benefits right in the – In the marketplace. Only in the marketplace or for employer-based care as so well? So both. Right. Um, so like the lifetime limits, the annual coverage, that's everybody. I actually don't know if essential – Health benefits also apply to employer-sponsored plans or not. They generally cover those things. I'm not sure if the regulation applies. 
Um, but some of it's marketplace, like the five to one age rating, for example, that's a marketplace specific regulation. Right. But that's one that it's going. And I guess now we're getting a little bit more into like process. We've talked about what's in this bill um, and how you actually move it seems really, really hard. So now we've talked about all the component parts of the bill. What is this bill achieving? I mean this very yeah. seriously. So so maybe maybe to set the table here. This bill has not had a good reception. No. It has had obviously a lot of opposition from left-leaning healthcare wonks and organizations and commentators who don't like it because it is ungenerous because it'll mean a lot of people can't afford health insurance because fewer people are covered because the coverage you do have is less comprehensive and because it's a giant tax cut for rich people. Mm -hmm. Right-leaning healthcare wonks have, if anything, been more cruel to the bill. The uh, <laughs> the like the things I've been reading there. Um, Phil Klein at the Washington Examiner said this bill shows liberalism has won. He's representing the sort of conservative view that this bill is Obamacare light, which it, it really actually is an Obamacare light bill. It is a worse version of Obamacare. Peter Suderman at at Reason, who's sort of a coming at healthcare from the libertarian perspective, he said this bill is um, it's just not at all clear what problems it is solving. You've had a number of people, Michael Cannon at Cato, who's a, again a, a libertarian healthcare wonk. He thinks it might be worse in Obamacare. It would have more sort of market disruption. You'd have more groups signing up for Medicaid and media. A lot, a lot of these things might not ever get actually repealed like the Medicaid expansion. 2020 is an election year. Uh, very, very likely that Democrats would just run on that, potentially win and restore Medicaid immediately. Uh, a number of conservatives in the House have just come out flatly against the bill and also in the Senate. Mike Lee is against the bill. Ted Cruz is against the bill. Rand Paul is against the bill. And the thing that's happening and coming up in all these different arguments is this bill does two things without doubt. The first thing it does, it is something that if Republicans pass it, they can say they repealed and replaced Obamacare. It, it achieves that goal. The other thing it does is it cuts taxes on rich people substantially. Yes. Beyond that, I am lost, genuinely lost to find one metric in the healthcare system this bill would make better. There, traditionally, Republicans and conservatives do have those who care about health care. There are things they are trying to achieve. Portability. They're trying to equalize the tax treatment between employer-based and individual market health care. They're trying in ways that I don't think are always obvious to, to make a more market-based health care system where consumers have a lot more choice. There are, there are things conservatives want to do, and they have all been thrown overboard. They want to get rid of state lines, right? Uh, a week ago, right. Donald Trump, the fifth point of his five-point demand set on health care was that we would get rid of the state line so that insurers could sell to any state. That is not in this bill. There's a whole thing about deregulating insurance so that insurers have a lot more ability to innovate and give people the insurance that they want and then consumers can make their choices. That is not in this bill. This bill keeps most of Obamacare's insurance regulations. It is completely unclear. This bill is going to hurt a lot of people. It's going to cause a lot of disruption. The downsides of it are very, very significant. And it could very much cause death spirals or heart attacks in insurance markets. And Republicans will own all of that. And for what? Well, I mean, it cuts taxes. I mean, you know, it's worth But why saying. not just cut taxes well, on I, people? I agree. I agree. It, it cuts taxes. And, and the other thing it does, which I think we, we mentioned on, on previous podcasts and, and I wrote about, is that it eliminates what Paul Ryan, I think, believes is a significant disincentive for low-income families to work hard and increase their market incomes. Um, I don't think there's a lot of mainstream 
evidence that this is true. Uh, but uh, Casey Mulligan, an economist from University of Chicago who was a New York Times columnist for a while, uh, he wrote a, a book called The Redistribution Recession, uh, arguing that Obamacare plus a, a couple things um, Congress did when Nancy Pelosi was speaker have created so much income redistribution that it actually induced the Great Recession by causing people to not want to work anymore. Um, I don't think Paul Ryan has ever explicitly gone as far as Mulligan, but he has he has frequently spoken in a way I mean I mean Paul Ryan is really, really good at getting favorable press from dumb fuck political reporters who don't understand what they're talking about. And so Paul Ryan will often stand up and say, it makes me so sad that there are millions of Americans stuck in a poverty trap. And people will write that up and be like, Paul Ryan's on his poverty tour talking about the struggles of low-income Americans. And what he means, and you see this in all of the legislation that he's ever introduced, is that poor people receive too much government benefits and they ought to have their standard of living lowered so that they can... Um, be more motivated to work hard. I think he said that school lunches won't fill the hole in your soul, um, which is true. <laughs> they give you food um, and and so on and, and so forth. And there is also a lot of rhetoric and to some extent belief from conservatives that having health insurance is not that valuable, right? I mean, we've seen that in discussions about Medicaid and, and other things like that. So simply... Taking it away from people is a benefit if it's useless. Although that doesn't do that enough to satisfy that group. I know. Right. I mean, that, I, that group is. Right, also I agree. Yeah. It, it does. It doesn't go that far. But it, but I mean, I, I think that's in there. It's interesting to look at what Donald Trump says this bill does. Um, since he is president of the United States, he was speaking last night with a group of, of House Republicans, and he said. Quote, this will be a plan where you can choose your doctor and this will be a plan where you can choose your plan. And you know what the plan is. This is the plan. It's a complicated process, but actually it's very simple. It's called good health care. I would not say that the bill achieves those goals. Oh, yeah. They're falling into the if you like your doctor, you can keep it trap. Oh, yeah. So that is similar to 2009. I I just – one thing that has struck me and I'm curious, Ezra, you covered the first health care debate too, is how incredibly – different this is from 2009-2010 in terms of the reception that the bill received. um, There were definitely, I I remember, you know, and it was a liberal wing of the House that was kind of thought this didn't go far enough. There's some single-payer advocates. The tax credits weren't high enough. But one of the things that has struck me um, is just how, like, the negative reception to this bill, it's not just the conservatives, it's also the more moderate Republicans. So you have, um, you know, Susan Collins saying she can't support the bill in its current form because it might leave people uninsured. You have um, the American Hospital Association opposes this bill. The American Medical Association came out today in which opposition. Is bad. You which do is not want the hospitals, the hospitals against your bill because the there's doctor, a hospital in every district. The um, insurance companies have not said anything about this bill, um, which I think is kind of a notable Silence. Um, Maybe they just haven't, haven't right, seen exactly. it Right, exactly. Been... Everybody's been off this week. Right. They're at a staff retreat. I'm sure that's what's <laughs> happening. Um one of the things Obama did, and he was criticized for it, was he did a lot of like deals and um, compromises and meetings with industry to make sure that like when the bill came out, they wouldn't be vociferously in support, but they would at least like not trash it right away. And none of that has gone on here. There, there is no sense. I've gotten one positive press release about. No, I've gotten two positive press releases 
about the Republican bill. One is from the United States Chamber of Commerce. The other is from the National Retailers Federation. That's it. And like those are not healthcare organizations. And it makes me also kind of wonder like how much Paul Ryan actually wants this bill to pass or how much he just like wants to like move as quickly as possible away from this and like blame it on procedure, blame it on something and decide, um, you know, we're just going to move on to tax reform. Because the way I see it, he's kind of staring down two undesirable choices. One is pass a bill that kicks millions of people off their health insurance. The second does not deliver on a campaign promise. I mean, neither of those are great, but it could be possible that the like not delivering on a campaign promise feels a little bit better at this point. And like, why not just like move as quickly as you can away from it and like pass some like small executive orders and like say you've done some things and like call it a day. So I think there are a couple things here. So one thing that is just genuinely different between Republicans today and Democrats in 2009 is Republicans today literally do not agree on what their goals are. Repeal and replace is a slogan that is supposed to serve a goal, right? It is a good slogan. It Part of the goal is repealing, but part of the goal is replacing, right? And in, in theory, you have that slogan because the replace means something to you. You want to repeal and replace Obamacare because you have something better to replace it with. To have something better to replace it with, you need to have some definition of better. And Democrats in 09, they mm-hmm. do have a definition of better. What they wanted was more coverage and they wanted to bend the long-term cost curve. And they wrote a bill that did both of those things. They taxed rich people and cut Medicare to subsidize coverage. And they, they have executed a very large coverage expansion. And then on the other side, they had a lot of tax changes and then also a lot of delivery system reforms that were pursuing two separate theories of cost control. One theory of cost control was that they would tax higher value plans. Um, and, and this is also how the subsidies are built to create more pressure to choose cheaper plans, pressure on behalf of employers, pressure on behalf of people in the individual market and in the, in the Obamacare exchanges. And we'd see consumer pressure and, and business pressure for, for cheaper and more innovative health insurance. The other side were all these payment reforms, which is a lot of the bill, much more of it than I think people realize, about trying to get doctors to pay for value, not just be doing, um, not just get paid per unit of healthcare. So they're trying to execute a, a volume-based strategy where they would move from paying for volume to, to paying for quality. Republicans just do not have anything like that. They do not have anything they've agreed on. And not only do they not have any goals they've agreed on, but and I'm, I'm writing this up today, but this is Plan D, this bill. And I think it's actually important to realize it. And, and we've moved there very fast. So plan A was repeal Obamacare before it began delivering benefits. And plan A died in 2012. But Republicans never really mentioned that, right? They, they sort of kept as if plan A would work until 2015 when they came up with plan B. And plan B was repeal and delay. That was plan B. And repeal and delay uh, was their plan from 2015 until basically January, yeah. let's say, 2017, when they looked at Plan B and they're like, oh, that, that's not going to work. Um, so they decided then they moved to Plan C. Plan C, I would say, is what Donald Trump proposed in his speech to Congress a week ago, which was Plan C is actually come up with a replacement bill that is pretty far reaching across the healthcare system, does a lot of insurance market regulation reform. And, and basically what, what, what that's about is there's a theory there that if you can allow insurers to sell across state lines and sell insurance that has much less regulation around it, they will start coming up with cheaper plans, change the way the insurance credits work, and you'll have a lot more consumer pressure towards a, a more affordable marketplace. Um, but that needs 60 votes in the Senate. 
And they decided they did not even want to try. They did not even want to try to have a process where this would be out there. It would be going through committees. He'd be trying to win over Democratic support. Donald Trump would be inviting Joe Manchin and Heidi Heitkamp and Claire McCaskill to the Oval Office a couple times a week. Like they just decided, fuck plan C. So now we're at plan D, which happened extremely fast. I mean, two weeks ago, we did not think we'd be sitting here today. But I'm like the employer exclusion. Was like right, the, the employer plan, exclusion right. was in until I'd say Friday. Plan C is like also a better way, and like these like kind yeah, of policy C, proposals. Yeah, Plan C was just a big health care yes. replacement bill. It's right? been in. I would say I would give them credit. It's been in the air for a few years. Totally, it became totally the main fair. plan. Right. right. The only difference between Plan B and Plan C was delay. Yes. Right. Like true. plan. Like it. Both Plan B and Plan C had this had the same underlying idea, which Paul Ryan said, which is you need sixty votes in the Senate to pass yes. a health care bill. That was Paul Ryan's view like a month ago. <laughs> Then they decided there aren't 60 votes. So now we're at Plan D. And Plan D is get something that can pass a reconciliation and do it fast. And that means you can't do a lot of the insurance regulation stuff. Plan D means you don't want to arouse that much opposition. So you move a lot more towards Obamacare because you're trying not to disrupt the status quo that much. It means you toss overboard a lot of the things you believed in, like limiting the employer tax exclusion, insurance regulation reform, letting people buy across state lines. And there was just no process behind Plan D. They did not spend time in committees trying to figure this out. They did not go and get a CBO score before they release their bill, which is a really striking thing. They don't know what their bill will do. As we speak right this second, markup on this bill is beginning. Like the committees in the House are mm-hmm. beginning to look at this bill. Simultaneously. None, yes. Simultaneously. None of these committees have a Congressional Budget Office score. None of them know what – the right. congressional budget Cong- Congress's scorekeepers think the bill will do, well, and it is likely just to add to that that they yeah. will vote on this bill before there is a score. So markups is, are scheduled for today and Thursday, and, then, and the score won't come out till next week. And so heard. then the market, the bill that gets scored, may not even be the bill that got marked. Like it's wild, the whole thing. Perhaps they, you can explain what markup is. Markup, is, well, actually, I'm I'm worried I'll get this slightly wrong. I'm going to let Sarah oh, describe what they're doing. Oh, I could get this slightly wrong too. So markup but... is they're they're working on the bill. They yes. are beginning to do amendments on the bill. Right. They're beginning. Yes to change the bill in committee, consider it, try to come to something. So basically what they have is a draft. They're going to alter the draft in committee and then try to vote the draft right. out of committee to so the So I floor. think that helps illustrate two, two points about the timing of this. One problem, if you've ever uh, worked on a collaborative document, is that if you have two different groups amending a document simultaneously, you lose your, your version control. Right. It's not a, like a sound process for this. Which happened on the Democratic bill, these, too. These things happen. And, you know, so it's like emergency, right? Then the other thing is that because the CBO score won't be over, you're, the score is going to be obsolete if they amend it at all. Mm-hmm. So part of the plan implicitly in this is to whip the committee members to not allow for substantive changes, right? Or it doesn't. Like none of this makes sense, right? It's not a um, – they're not running the committees as a consensus building process. And they're working blind. Right. They don't know what they need to fix. Uh, right. But I mean they're also – they're not – like at no point in this process have they said or done anything that has like tempted – Colin Peterson from the little tippy top of Minnesota in a district that Trump won by eight points to like stroll on over and be like, hey, maybe we should talk about this, right? They're just like forward, 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 not not 
neither seeking bipartisanship nor attempting to like actually squeeze more vulnerable House Democrats. They're focused exclusively on getting Freedom Caucus members on board and like getting the bill out the door. Mm -hmm. I covered Obamacare, which was a, you know, year and a half-ish process. Yeah, 15 and months. 15 months. And then before it, there was a lot of mm-hmm. Senate Finance Committee work. And I remember Republicans saying at the end of that, like, endless period of covering Obamacare, this had been done too fast. It was being jammed on the American people's throats. You should not ever do something this big on party lines. Also, they're still saying that. That's not a remember. Like, this has right, been yes. a constant critique for seven years. And I... Do not know how to manage the level of cynicism and hypocrisy in this. I, I actually don't like. I'm just. I do not like to believe this about people. I, I, I get into um, disagreements with my friend Matt about people's motive, and then something like this happens. And it is. I'm not saying you need to take the whole 50 months. I'm not saying it needs to be a mirror of the process. I am saying when you have come up with a bill nobody has ever seen before that had no kind of public construction process two days ago and you're in markup before you have a CBO score and Mitch McConnell is saying he wants once it's out of the House to take it directly to the Senate floor and pass it before the April recess. So you're going to reconstruct the entire American healthcare system in a month without – like really any serious consideration by committees without going back and forth with CBO as you try to make this bill better. Now, one version of this is maybe they just believe this won't happen. So they're just trying to kill this thing fast and move on to tax reform. If so, fine. But this is the most appalling. It is the most appallingly hypocritical thing or one of them that I've ever seen in politics. But it's also such a dangerous way to do something as important as health reform. Like these are real people's lives. If you build this bill badly, even Obamacare, which people spent a lot of time on, I think you look and you say there's a lot that could have been done better there. Um, and it would be great if they Congress had been willing to go revisit it. This is nuts. It is nuts. And just none of them, like none of them are walking out and saying, listen, I know this seems a little bit weird given everything I ever said about healthcare processes. But here's my reasoning on this. It's nothing. Mm-hmm. I think the reason this hypocrisy is not bothering them is that I think a lot of people who cover health policy are skipping very lightly over the larger hypocrisy of this bill, which was that if you had never read a health care draft white paper from Republicans ever in your life, but you had watched every single Sunday show appearance of any Republican member of Congress or presidential candidate since January of 2009, you would have believed that Republicans were working on ideas Mm -hmm. to improve the robustness of Americans' health insurance, that Republicans were very upset about the high premiums, high deductibles, and high copayments in the Obamacare system. They were very upset about Medicaid's questionable like uh, breadth of choice Mm -hmm. that it gives patients and that they were very upset about out-of-pocket costs among people in the employer-provided market. Those are the things that they said were wrong with Obamacare. They said in 2009, 2010, they said it – And that it cut Medicare Mm -hmm. spending. At 2013, 2014, 2015, 2016, they began saying those things at an accelerated pace, right? The closer you get to a week ago from today – the extent to which Republicans amped up their questions that the problem is that Americans are not receiving 
adequately generous healthcare got like higher and higher and higher to a crescendo, right? Like Donald Trump in a not during the campaign in January after the transition was underway, gave an interview with The Washington Post where he said that we needed universal coverage. Mitch McConnell said that Obamacare, one of its failings was that millions of people were still uninsured under the plan. Now, it is true that like if you were an intelligent person who just assumed that all of the – and I want to be clear. Like this is not Donald Trump. This is quote unquote the good ones. We're just like lying constantly all the time about all of this. And I think one reason why they may not be so bothered by breaking a campaign promise about repeal and replace or being hypocritical on process is that like there's no way out of this, right? Like they can repeal Obamacare and replace it with some kind of conservative health policy idea or they can deliver on the promises they've been making to voters. But like they're antithetical, right? Mm -hmm. And like they just like they can't do it. So at some point, everything small, like was it hypocritical of us to run against Medicare cuts that we're now not trying to repeal, even though we could repeal them under the bird rule? Like, yes, that is hypocritical. But like, you know, like who cares, right? It's like there's this like huge elephant in the room is like they're going to make people's deductibles higher, not lower, when they just spent like months screaming about how deductibles are too high and you can do nothing you can but like there's no there's there's like no way out of that corner they painted themselves into and almost nothing else matters besides that right like if you voted to elect a house republican in 2014 because you were concerned that the quality of your Obamacare plans was like not what you were hoping for. Like they have no solution for that. They well, have some things they can solve, but like not that core issue. And I think this speaks to a theme that's come up in like a lot of my work and Ezra's work of how entrenched Obamacare has become and how this theory – we were talking about Paul Pearson and his work and how wrong it was a few months ago. And like, look, they're going to get rid of this thing. And I think I was more – yeah, okay, as Ezra's brushing, brushing off his shoulder. Well, Paul Pearson was, told you it was wrong. <laughs> he told me it was wrong, but now Paul Pearson doesn't think Paul Pearson was wrong. So it has surprised me, particularly with Medicaid expansion, with Medicaid often being a vulnerable program, how entrenched and how difficult it has been to roll the law back. And if you look at the Republican health care plan, if you looked at that compared to the health insurance system we had in 2009, you'd say, oh, that's like, a decent improvement. Like, like that is better than the individual market we have. It has these protections and this ban on pre-existing conditions and it even has tax credits. Like what a nice, nice plan we've developed. And now it doesn't look like that. Like now it looks like a step backwards and the baseline has really changed. Like the baseline is where we are right now. It, it is the law with the Affordable Care Act. And I think that is one of the struggles um, that Republicans are dealing with right now is that they they weren't able to do plan A, the benefits. And finally, this theory Democrats had um, years ago that has been wrong for so many years that the law would become more popular as benefits roll out <laughs> and that like people would like it once they got it. Like that theory finally has started proving true in 2017 when uh, poll after poll shows the health care law is more popular than ever. And it took the threat of the law disappearing to get there. But it really has surprised me how much, given how divisive this law is, how much campaign there has been against it, like how difficult it is proving to to get rid of it in any substantial way. And one thing I'm curious about, I don't know if we have a lot of polling on this yet, is 
what Republicans, I presume they're working with pollsters, like trying to figure out what they should do about this whole repeal situation. Um, I'm curious what they're finding on how committed voters actually are to repeal. Um, I've been doing these focus groups with Obamacare and Rollies. One thing that surprised me is that all of them support repeal. They are frustrated with their plans. They're frustrated with the deductibles. Nobody said, like, I'm going to be disappointed if they can't get it done. There was, like, all these excuses offered for Donald Trump when they talked about this. Like, well, Congress is hard and it involves a lot of people. Like, people actually kind of got this. And at least, you know, the groups, this is a smaller sample, so I'm curious to see if there's survey research. But when I was talking to Trump voters about, well, what's your top priority? It was, like, build the wall, um, you know, prosecute Hillary. Like, they were—it was not— Obamacare. Um, It did not come up as a top priority, which is why I kind of think when you look at this decision, kick millions off their health insurance, fail on a campaign promise, like that second one might just be more appealing. So then here's the conspiracy theory version of this. Let's say that you are Paul Ryan and you're Mitch McConnell. And to some degree, you're Donald Trump, but it's possible nobody's even (sighs) talked to you about this. You're Paul Ryan, you're Mitch McConnell, and you're Reince Priebus. And you're looking at this problem you have. You have no good way out of the Obamacare mess. Your plans are not going to be popular. If you, by some terrible accident, manage to pass one of your plans into law, (laughs) you'll actually have to implement it. And then there'll be all this disruption and it's going to come around an election and it's just a a total disaster. But you have this promise. It is the thing that Republicans expect of you above all else. You have sworn to it over and over and over again. And you somehow need to get this off the table as fast as possible so you can move on to tax reform. What would you do? And the answer might be that you would come up with some kind of wacky plan, just like whatever, just something that looked credible uh, that, you know, maybe could pass, but but probably cannot. Uh, that and It's good enough that people say you gave it your best effort. You do it through reconciliation so that it doesn't go through a process that Democrats can slow down. You don't want to burn any time on this at all. Um, you bring it up. You try to jam it through the House as quickly as possible and you try to jam it through the Senate as quickly as possible. If by some crazy outcome it passes, you will figure that out later, but probably it just fails quickly by April and then you move on with your life and you say those Democrats or those moderate Republicans or whatever it is, whoever, that House Freedom Caucus, screw them. That is – this is an argument that both of you have implied to me in different ways and I just want to put it on the table because that's a different version of the hypocrisy argument that there – that Paul – that is a different answer to the hypocrisy argument. The Paul Ryan is not trying to run a process to pass a health care reform bill. He's trying to run a process to get this off of his plate yes. and like not pass a health care reform bill. I would say one way that could fail and backfire massively is that the marketplaces like aren't doing great. And just this whole debate has yeah. like introduced a lot of instability. Yep. There was one insurer who told the Wall Street Journal like they thought there'd be mass exits um, if you saw this new plan pass. Um, they want this new tax credit system to start in 2018, which is really fast. Like Obamacare didn't even have its expansion launch for four years. This would be a so really big change. People lose their insurance in an election year. I just want to note that point, <laughs> right? Yeah, 2018 is an election year. A lot of people will find they can't afford the insurance they're currently on yes. in an election year. So I think one way they get stuck with this problem is that the markets, we start seeing in April when insurance companies have to decide if they're going to sell or not, they're just like, I'm out. Like, there's no point in me being in this market. It's way too volatile. I could lose a lot of money. And so let's say even that doesn't happen. In a Clinton administration, you were going to need to do a lot of regulatory work and possibly some legislative work to shore up the marketplaces. They were having trouble keeping insurers in the market. 
it seems like no one's going to rejoin the market who left in 2016, because why would you possibly get back into this mess? And you'll probably see some exits because of just all the um, confusion. So I could see a situation where all of this kind of fails and Paul Ryan gets to move on and gets to do something different. But then some of the marketplaces don't have insurers. And then you have people who can't buy health insurance because no one will accept their tax credit. And like, you will have to do something about that situation. So I I think that is one risk factor in all of this. That's a bit unpredictable at this point. I think, you know, I, I do think like so much of this like goes back to the just like basic dishonesty of the Republican campaign against Obamacare, right? So like one reason why the benefits rolling out didn't make the program popular is that Republicans were out there saying, we're going to give you lower premiums, lower deductibles, and lower copayments, right? And better insurance. Right. If Republicans had been saying from day one, the big problem with this law is your deductibles aren't high enough, and Democrats have been like, no, we think low deductibles are good. Like, I think they would have been on, on the winning side from from day one. And a problem for Republicans with not repealing the law is that if they give up on repeal, the fundamentals of healthcare politics like come back to the foreground, right? Where Democrats running in 2018, running in 2020, running in 2022 can just go back to the well and say, Americans need better health insurance. Donald Trump and these cruel Republicans are messing it up. Here's my plan to, you know, close this loophole, do that, do that, you know, tax the rich and give give more money to people for better insurance, right? And Republicans have, like, nothing on that, right? This sort of proposed sleight of hand where you, like, say people are going to get lower deductibles, but then actually you give them higher deductibles – there's like a big problem with it, but it is an answer to the question of like, what are you going to do about the fact that I wish my deductibles were lower? If you just walk away from the problem, then you just you kind of have this like knife sticking in your back. Uh, the other thing, repeal and replace is supposed to be doable under the bird rule because these Medicaid cuts in theory have this like very long tail reduction of spending. I think we need to say here, the bird rule says you cannot pass something in the bird rule that increases the deficit in a 10-year window. No, outside, outside of the 10-year I'm sorry, outside right. the 10-year So it window. encourages all kinds of monkeying around, right? So like if you have a policy idea that cuts government spending by a little bit each and every year until the end of time and you like stick that in in like year eight of the budget window, you can like get a lot of work done through through the bird rule, and then you can kind of like wink and nod, like actually maybe we won't really do that. Um, and so the the Medicaid cuts in this bill like serve that purpose, right? It's phased out until 2020. Um, I think a lot of uh, conservatives are doubtful that that would stick, but as long as it's in the law, right? It's it's it it cuts because uh, because it caps enrollment, mm-hmm. right? Like in an infinite time horizon, yes. <laughs> everybody is going to be thrown off Medicaid under that uh, under that proposal. So it it has like a lot of bird juice, and that lets you enact. This $600 billion tax cut, which you wouldn't otherwise – permanent tax cut, which you wouldn't otherwise be able to do through reconciliation. That then lets you do a revenue-neutral comprehensive tax reform, right? But if you don't cut Medicaid over the long haul, then you have no offset for your tax cut plan and you have to go back to George W. Bush's gimmick 
which is you do a huge tax cut and then you have it expire after nine years <laughs> and you like hope that you can win the fight then. But what Republicans saw when Obama was president was that that didn't work, right? They weren't able to make that that stick, right? So Kevin Brady- they made a lot of it stick. Some, yes, uh, but not the part that they care right. about. Um, so Kevin Brady, you know, had an interview with, with Jim Tankersley. That, He's that's the chair of the Ways and Means uh, House Committee. Ways and Means Committee and is the, um, he has a lot of jurisdiction over the healthcare mm-hmm. issue, but has been focused on the tax issue. But he is very clear in that interview that like he wants to do a permanent comprehensive tax reform. If they don't do some kind of repeal and replace, the only way to make Kevin Brady's dream a reality would be for the tax reform to raise revenue, um, which doesn't sound like a crazy idea to me, but is like not their idea. They want a comprehensive tax reform that is permanent and that cuts revenue. And so they need something to offset that with. And a long-term cut to Medicaid is like the thing that they have. So it does all hinge together. And if they walk away from this, I, I do think that this supercharged process does sort of seem like an effort to like say we tried and now we're moving on to the next thing. But their next thing doesn't work unless they get this done. Um, so then they're going to have to really rethink like what is the whole agenda here. But I think you mentioned the bird rule. And this makes this is another reason why I think this whole effort is doomed because it doesn't look like this bill can actually pass through reconciliation. I spent yesterday talking to a lot of Senate process experts who think that the argument that some of the really important parts in AHA um, are, are not going to pass. I'm just testing different ones yes. out to see how they feel. Um that there's no way that they are considered kind of directly affecting the budget. Kind of the one they think would be most worrisome is this premium surcharge for continuous coverage. It is very – and that gets paid to insurance companies, um, not to the government. So it's very, very hard to make an argument that this is somehow related to the federal budget. Um, and Sarah Binder, she's a kind of Congress procedure expert at GW, she was reminding me that um, – They've already run into some bird rule issues around this in 2015 when they were just trying to pass a straight repeal bill and, like, figure out with the parliamentarian, how can we repeal Obamacare through reconciliation? And the parliamentarian wouldn't let them repeal the individual mandate. She thought the budget effects of repealing the individual mandate were just incidental. It was you're trying to create a policy change. You're not trying to change revenue. So what they did, which did pass muster, is they just reduced the penalty to zero. And she said, OK, like, that's changing penalties does affect the budget. But it requires some like really creative thinking. But if you change the penalty on the continuous coverage requirement to zero. No, but it goes to the insurers. It doesn't go to the government. Right. That's what I mean. Like you couldn't couldn't run that trick. Right. So that's another reason that makes me think this is like a joke meant to fail. And then you'll say, ah, Senate rules. Now, there are some people like Ted Cruz says like, fuck the Senate rules. Like we're allowed to overrule the parliamentarian. Let's just like push this through. But I don't think like Mitch McConnell wants to it's like another version of going nuclear, right? Like to say we don't listen to the parliamentarian anymore. Like that's kind of OK. A but tough if Mitch road. McConnell is listening, the way to fix this <laughs> is to change the continuous coverage provision to be a 30 percent tax on premiums paid by people who have failed to maintain continuous coverage. That'll pass muster. I don't know. We'll anyway, see. there's a lot of stuff like that, but I agree with you. I don't, I don't think That's Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski right. want to <laughs> overrule the parliamentarian for this bill. Like, I don't Lisa think they Murkowski, like this bill. They don't. They're already, so I mean, like, why Lisa do Murkowski this? comes from Alaska. This bill is a disaster for – like a total disaster. Yeah, it is worth saying actually there's a lot of drama in the House right now with like Paul Ryan and the Freedom Conference and stuff. But at face value, 
we have four, I think, Senate Republicans who said that they won't sign on for a bill that cuts Medicaid. Right. And I, Susan, heard, yeah. I heard eight today have said they're concerned about the Medicaid provisions in this bill. I okay. think there's a mix in that. Sure. Right. Plus two or three who are dissenting from the right. Yep. Plus now up on Morning Joe this morning, you had Tom Cotton raising, I would say, bad faith procedural objections. Um, because a, an issue that a number of these people have is that like, like one of the ironies of Obamacare is that it does the most help to the lowest income states. The lowest income states are generally the most conservative states in terms of their politics. Some of those states, including Kentucky and Arkansas and Louisiana, um, have expanded Medicaid. So there's a strong interest for uh, representatives from those places like Rand Paul and Tom Cotton to like gin up like conservative, quote unquote, reasons to not want to repeal this bill, then like money keeps flowing into their state and like their hospitals and local economies stay okay, but they can still say I'm like a rock solid conservative. Uh, David Frum called this, um, I think, denounce and preserve. It was his <laughs> characterization of, of Rand Paul's tactic on this. And like it's a, it's a good one, right? So when Obamacare was coming through, a, a lot of left wing members of Congress at one time or another had the idea of being like, I'm not going to vote for this. It's not left wing enough. Um, but the reality was like they liked it more than they liked the status quo. And so they had very little real leverage. Many of the conservative dissenters are like not like that. Rand Paul, I, I don't want to like say I'm reading his mind, but it is a fine outcome for the people of Kentucky. Small business owners in the state of Kentucky, hospital executives, people who Rand Paul has to talk to, voters who he knows in southeastern Kentucky. Like tens of thousands of people on Medicaid extension. Yeah, they're they're going to be fine if the status quo continues. Um, so if he can just like maintain that he is really angry with these half measures, like that's a totally, totally fine outcome for him in a way that the status quo was not. Not okay for Bernie Sanders in, in 2009. Yeah, he both remains a hero to conservative activists because he's like the keeper of the true faith and doesn't piss off the middle. Um, all right. I have to go back and cover more of this stuff. So this has been the Weeds Fox's Policy Podcast on the Panoply Network covering Acha, Achu, or Acha, depending on how you think about it. Uh, thank you my colleagues, Sarah Cliff and Matt Iglesias, our producer, Afim Shapiro. And we'll be back next week. <laughs>